So this morning we come to Psalm 9, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. And if you look at a quick word study of the words being used in Psalm 9, it's very clear that this psalm is thanksgiving to the Lord. The Lord's name, Yahweh, is used nine times throughout the psalm. And throughout the psalm, we see several things. We see that God is a righteous judge who punishes the wicked. He judges the nations in a just manner. And several commentators have noted that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were originally one psalm, as the one speaks about God's judgment of the wicked. And then Psalm 10 speaks about David's experience on earth, that this judgment which he expects is somehow not happening, somehow missing. And most English Bibles separate these two psalms, and I, and I definitely think due to the length of both, it would take quite some time to preach on both of them in one day. But we should view Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as fraternal twins. So as I preach Psalm 9 today, I would like you to make notes and like you to take mental notes of what Psalm 9 teaches, so that when Peter preaches on Psalm 10 next week, you may be in the clear of what is going on, since these two should be read together. And I think together... We read Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as when we read them together, we see a cohesive whole, a cohesive teaching, both on the one end, the theological truths that God is a just God, as well as the reality of human life. So reading Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together is a really good theological and also practical way of us to make sense of why is there evil in this world? Why is God's judgment not apparent? Why is there still suffering? Why are good people, good Christian people, seemingly worse off than those who are not Christians? And all of these questions, which are difficult ones to answer, are being answered as we read Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. But as we come to Psalm 9 this morning, similar to other weeks, David gives us a picture of God. You'll remember in the previous weeks, we've seen several ways in which God is depicted. And today we see the picture of God as a judge seated on the throne. And that is also our title for the sermon today. God the judge seated on his throne. So throughout the psalm today, we will be looking at what it means for God to be seated on the throne. And also what it means for us as God's people. So... Before David tells us what that means, he starts, as he starts almost every psalm, by praising God. And that's our first point for today, praising the wonderful works of God. Praising the wonderful works of God. So we've read the psalm this morning, and as you can see, it's very clear that David is still suffering. It's very clear that David is still hoping for a future deliverance. Yet in these first two verses, David starts by giving thanks to God. He says, I will give thanks to God with my whole heart. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David will not give half-hearted thanks to God. It will be done with his whole heart. And this phrase, with my whole heart, is something that we find throughout the Old Testament. It refers to the depth of David's assurance and confidence that God will do the things which David asks of God to do. David is essentially saying that this is not only praise which comes from his lips, but it is praise coming from inward. It's coming from the totality of David's being, the center 
of David's trust. I mean, it's very easy to say something with our lips, yet our hearts do not believe that. What David is saying here is that this trust, which he's speaking about, is coming from a whole heart. It's coming from the depths of his heart. We as humans, we typically tend to look at the outside. When somebody tells us that they'll do something, we generally tend to believe them. We're persuaded by either deceptive speech many times. We're persuaded by speech that tickles our ears. Yet God isn't like that. God looks at our hearts. And this is why Jesus could rebuke the Pharisees when he said that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And this is a scary thought. I mean, many of us, we're Christians. We come to church every week. We pray. We sing God's praises. We speak about God to people at work. Let that not be said that our hearts are actually far from God. Our mouths praise God. Our mouths give praise to God, yet our hearts are far from Him. David gives us a glimpse here of what true praise and true worship looks like. David also, as he tells us what true praise and true worship looks like, shows us why he can praise God. He can praise God because the foundation of his praise is the wonderful works of God. And this is a Reference back to his mighty works in history. David can meditate here on either God's creation or the way that God has rescued his people or God's great judgment against the people when he sent the flood or God's great grace by actually saving Noah. There are many wondrous works which David can praise God for. A theologian, Herman Bavinck, wrote a book called The Wonderful Works of God in which he reflects on theology, saying that theology and all of the scriptures are essentially a study of the wonderful works of God. He's saying that theology in itself is actually a study or a reflection on the wonderful works and the wonderful deeds of what God has done. And ultimately, the greatest work, the most wonderful work that we can see is the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no greater thing that God has done. I mean, let's think about this. God became a man, died for sinners, was dead, and was raised again. Those are insane things. Those are indeed mighty, wonderful works of God. So yes, we can look at creation. We can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains, and they're great works, sure. We can look at God's deliverance of the Israelites and say, yeah, that was great. You know, the sea parted and the Israelites died, or the, the Egyptians died and the Israelites were kept safe. Those are indeed great works, yet the creation of a heart of stone into a heart of flesh has to be one of the greatest works that God has ever done. The deliverance of a person in bondage to sin, dead in their trespasses, being made alive in Christ, has to be one of the greatest works of God. So why is it that David can sing God's praises by just reflecting on creation, yet we who know that Christ has come and died for our sins are so lackluster in our worship of God. We are so apathetic towards God. Our hearts are so cold towards God, yet we have seen the most wonderful work that God has ever done in sending Christ. It's a travesty that we as Christians 
look at David and we're like, man, these are, these are really great words of worship. And yes, they are. Yet we have greater things to meditate upon than David. David saw creation. David saw God's work in creation and he was filled with praise. Yet we who have seen Christ, we who have seen God's creative power in making us alive, while our hearts are lukewarm, our hearts are cold, we embrace this world, our praise sometimes cold. The reality is that a half-hearted heart is no heart at all. And this is really the challenge for us as even Presbyterians, you know, we sing the Psalms every week. We pray the Psalms every week. Yet how often do we sing the Psalms, yet our hearts are far from God? How often do we sing the Psalms and our minds are thinking about the things of this week? Church, the key to proper singing and praying of the Psalms is a fully devoted heart to the things we're singing and praying. A heart that is characterized by wholeness. Worshipping God with a divided heart isn't worship at all. And this is a hard word for us, but we need to realize that as we sing the Psalms, we should ask ourselves, are we singing the Psalms with whole hearts, dedicated and devoted to the worship of God, or are we going through the motions? Are we worshipping God with our whole being, or are we just sitting there, minds drifting away? We should sing praise to this great God, with all that we are because He has done great things. And we have seen these great things. It's not as if these great things are hidden to us. We have seen these things and the only proper response to the work of Christ and God's wonderful works is wholehearted praise. And this is my challenge for us this morning as we start the sermon. That next time we sing the Psalms or any Christian song for that matter, let us meditate where our heart is at when our mouths are moving. Let us think where our minds are at when our lips are singing the praises of God. Are we singing the praises of God, yet our hearts and our minds meditate on the things of this world? Or are we actually meditating on the truths of Christ? So the title of the sermon today is The Judge on His Throne. And David gives us two important facts about God being the judge. On the one hand, God is the judge of the nations. And on the other hand, God is a refuge for the oppressed. And these will be our following two points. So our second point for today is God is the judge of the nations. So after worshipping God with his whole heart, David now turns to his enemies. If you follow with me in verse 3, David says, My enemies turn back and they stumble. Yet at the same time, David's eyes are focused on God. He says, you have maintained my cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So while David looks at where his enemies are going, his eyes are still focused on God. And I mean, for those of you who have been here in the last few weeks, this is similar language. David sees his enemies. David sees his enemies coming from him. Yet David sees God behind them. David sees God who is exalted above them, saying, I have assurance that whatever comes my way, my hope and trust is in God. God is so much bigger than the enemies coming to me. And as they turn away, they stumble and perish before God. And again, you will remember that we looked at a Hebrew word the last few weeks, which is mispat, which means judgment. And this is the same word when David says, you have maintained my just cause. 
God has upheld David's righteousness. David has already been pronounced just. So as David is standing before the throne of God, God is almost like a judge on a bench pronouncing judgment. David is standing being accused by his enemy saying, I have assurance. I have trust. I have a covenant with God. I've already been pronounced just. My cause before God is just. I have nothing to fear. God has already pronounced me just. He has already ruled in my favor. And I find it really interesting that David describes God as sitting in judgment. But not on a bench like a judge would, but on a throne. This is a very interesting way if you read the Old Testament and when you read about judges and kings, judges very rarely sit on thrones. It's reserved for kings. That is what David sees. David sees God as the Most High. A bench wouldn't be enough for God to pronounce judgment from. God is the king of the universe. He cannot sit anywhere but on the throne. God is on the throne as the Most High, judging this world. And you'll remember that in Psalm 7 we spoke about God's judgment of the wicked. And this is what we see in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as well. God not only judges the wicked, but He judges the nations who are wicked. It's not individual people that stand before God, but it's wicked nations which will come under the judgment of God. And David doesn't give us a flowery picture of God's judgment. David doesn't tell us that it will be, you know, maybe get some jail time with some, maybe a a fine that you have to pay. No, God has rebuked the nations. He makes the wicked perish. He blots out their name forever. They come to everlasting ruin. He roots out the cities. Their very memory has perished. So what is David seeing? Well, this is quite a scary image for anybody who is not found in Christ. It says God rebukes the nations. He sends them out of His presence. But He doesn't just leave it there. He causes them to perish and blots out their name. And not just as individuals, but whole cities will be rooted up. And as if that's not enough, the rebuking, the judgment, the perishing, the blotting out of their names, their bodies being destroyed, God will even blot out their memory. They won't be remembered. This is serious judgment. We're speaking about this. God's judgment is not something that we should play with. I think many times we speak about God's judgment as if it's something to play about. You know, oh, I really hope, you know, God will judge uh, this, this nation, this nation is really perverse. And yes, as Christians, our hearts should desire to see God's judgment. But do we know what we're praying for? We're praying for destruction, memory being blotted out, cities being rooted out. And that is what we will see when Christ returns. That is what we will see. It's a scary picture. It's not a flowery picture. And this cannot be changed. Since God sits enthroned forever. In fact, He has established His throne forever. Now, for many of us, this is quite scary. You know, it's like 
Whenever we think of someone sitting on the throne forever or someone being in a ruling position forever, we get this image of some African dictator who refuses to give up power after being in government for eight years. And yet, this is not the case with God. He has to be enthroned forever. If He is the Most High, He has to be enthroned forever. It is in His nature to be enthroned forever. It is in His nature to be the Most High forever. And it's a good thing. Because God is not like an African dictator who judges based on perversity or judges based on pride or judges based on personality. God is a good God who will judge rightly. It is a good thing because He is a good God and a good judge. And this is what our hope is in as Christians. If God did not sit on the throne forever and we place our faith in that God... Who is to say that some greater deity we don't even know won't supplant God on the throne and then judges us and then we don't enjoy eternal life? We have to praise a God and we have to place our trust in God who sits enthroned forever, who is the Most High. And again, for many of us it's a scary thought that God will judge the nations. But I said, this is one hand. On the one hand, God is the judge of the nations. Our third point is the other hand. He's a refuge for the oppressed. And I find this a really interesting contrast that David is doing. David is speaking about God's judgment of the wicked. And as soon as we're in the psalm and being like, oh, this is getting crazy. David says, no, but the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Those who know the Lord have not been forsaken by him. So in the psalm we see God's throne and God being the most high meaning two things. On the one hand it is terrible judgment and on the other hand it is insane safety. He's the one who judges the wicked but he's the one who gives safety to his people. If you're terrified by this image of God's judgment then God's refuge and safety should give you great assurance. That this God who can blot out people from memory, this God who can root out cities, this God who can judge the nations, this same God is the one who keeps us safe. And so follow with me in verse 9. David is ready to proclaim God as a refuge, a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. The Hebrew word used for stronghold here in verse 9 is a word used throughout the Old Testament which refers to a high or a rocky spot that's inaccessible and provides protection from enemies. The psalmist here sees God as a remote or a protected spot to which he can flee in times of trouble. For the Norwegians here, it's similar to a hitter, right? When the week gets too difficult, when things are getting rough, you have a space to run to on a Friday. God is a stronghold, a place of safety we can run to in times of trouble. And it's important for David to remind us that God has not forsaken us. And we see this in verse 11. He tells us that God is both enthroned in heaven, but He's also enthroned in Zion. I think when we speak about God being enthroned in heaven, it might seem for us Like He's an impersonal God. He's a God above there. He's above us. He's somewhere out there. Yet David reminds us that He's enthroned in Zion, the mountain 
on which Jerusalem is founded. God is also enthroned among us. Zion is the place where God built His temple. God chose to put His presence in a specific place within time and space. And He has made His presence known to His people. And He did the same in Christ. John tells us that Christ tabernacled with us among His people. So God is both enthroned in heaven above us, but in Christ He has tabernacled among us. He is enthroned among us as well. He's both the one who rules us as a king, but also decided to dwell among us as a man. And verse 11 confirms this. I mean, if you look back, it says, Those who know your name. Verse 10 returns to this theology of the divine name, which we saw last week. Those who name know the name of Yahweh, those who know the covenant God, His covenant people, or those who have received His revelation and share in an intimate knowledge with Him. This is a great thought for us. God not only tabernacled among us, He died for us, gave us His Spirit, and in fact revealed Himself that we might know Him. In the same way that He revealed Himself as Yahweh to the Old Testament people, He has revealed Himself in Christ that we might know Him. Not only know Him, but also trust Him. I think for many of us who are Reformed Christians, we speak about knowing God and the importance of knowledge and it's really easy for us to view our relationship with God as a simple mental recognition that God is there. And for many people, they think that's what faith is. Faith is just believing a bit more that God exists than believing that He doesn't exist. Then, I'm, then I'll be fine. I'll go to heaven. If I, 51% God exists, 49% God does, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. But this is not what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see a complete reliance on God. A pursuit of the heart and a drawing up of our affections to God. This past week, uh, Thomas and Toril and Frode came to have dinner with us and I showed him one of the Puritan books. And it was quite interesting. I opened a page on practical atheism, which as I was preparing the sermon, fitted really well. And one Puritan, Stephen Sharnock, speaks on practical atheism, where he speaks about this thing which is, you don't identify as an atheist, but when you look at your life, you're practically an atheist. And he says here that the natural man, the non-Christian, will have a desire to have a knowledge of God. But their desire is not to know God or delight in God, it's just to know more about God than other people. He describes it as their desire is the furnishing of their understanding, not the quickening of their affections. They're like boys who strike fire, not to warm themselves by the heat, but to have fun with the sparks. And we see this in our world, that many play around with the knowledge of God to have debates, or to write books, or to have fancy arguments. Yet they don't desire to have their affections drawn to God. Merely knowing things about God, but not in fact knowing God and having your affections turned toward Him, is nothing more than practical atheism. Are you seeking God today with your whole heart? Are you trusting God 
with your entire being? Are your affections turned to Him? He has done wondrous works. He has done wondrous deeds, both in the Old Testament and in the New. He's worthy of our trust, you would agree. He's worthy of our affections, you would agree. And in verse 12, David gives us another example of God's wondrous deeds. Look at verse 12. He says that God has avenges the blood. He's mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God remembers whose blood is shed. The people who shed the blood of the people of God will have to give an account to God. God does not forget the cry of the oppressed. We're reminded of this in Revelation where it tells us that the martyrs are in heaven with God, crying out for God's judgment to come. And they're being reconciled with the words that judgment will come on those who took their lives. The murderer will give an account before God. The martyrs and those who are oppressed will be vindicated. And this truth, that God will vindicate His people, that God will not forget when His people are killed, is what leads David to a passionate plea in verses 13 and 14. Be gracious, consider my affliction, lift me up from the gates of death. Here David asks the Lord to deliver him from the hands of his enemies. He wants God to deliver him from death itself. And it's really beautiful here, this contrast between the gates of death and the gates of the daughter of Zion. On the one hand, David is facing the threat of death. On the other hand, David is already joyful for his deliverance. God who sits in judgment is the one who declares judgment on those who seek to kill the people of God. I mean, what a great picture of the gospel. God has taken David from the gates of death and placed him in front of the gates of life. God has transferred him from the doors of the death and placed him in front of doors of life. David thought he was going to die and he was made alive. What a great picture of our lives. What a great picture of the gospel. I mean, all of us sitting here today has been in front of the gates of death. In fact, not even in front of the gates of death, but in fact in the city of death. We were dead in sin. And God took us out of the city of death and placed us into the city of life. He has given us eternal life. He has taken our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. And perhaps you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't think I've experienced this. I have not had this reality of standing before death's gates with no hope. And then I've received life. Well, my plea to you would be to cry out to God this morning, as David has, to ask the Lord to be gracious to you, to see your affliction, to take you from the clutches of death and to give you new life. And the Lord will hear you. The Lord will take you from the city of death and give you citizenship to the city of life. Where you'll be able to rejoice with the rest of those who will call Christ King in the gates of Zion.
Our fourth point this morning then is God's judgment of the nations. God's judgment of the nations. Well, I'm sure as we look at society today, we see a lot of political turmoil. Social unrest, economic insecurity. It's quite easy to get discouraged. There is wars happening around us, plagues, killing people, a lot of social unrest. It is difficult not to feel anxious. It's really difficult not to despair when we look around us. And add to this injustices and exploitations of people, whether it is people being put into mines to mine for lithium, or whether it's people being killed in, in China or in wars. We see that it's very easy for us as Christians to lose hope. And this is exactly what we need to hear as we come to the final words of Psalm 9. Because David tells us that a day of reckoning is coming. Divine judgment is indeed on the way. The Lord is going to make things right. And as we read these last five verses, many people find David's wording quite strange. David writes as if these things have already happened. He says, the nations have sunk. Their foot has been caught. God has executed judgment. Future events are described as if he, those things have already happened. And David does this to show us that his trust is so sure that God will do these things, that it's as if these things have already happened. The nations who rage against God, if you look at verse 15, will be caught in the net that they hid to catch others. This is the sort of reap what you sow analogy, right? You, you do something to catch others and that's the exact thing that happens to you. But David doesn't just tell these nations that they will reap what they sow. He uses this as an image of divine justice. Because God is just, He will return to the evildoer the exact thing which the evildoer desired to do to the, thing, to the people of God. It is clear if you look at the final verses of verse 9 that these things still have to happen. Evil still has to receive its judgment from God. Yet because David can trust in God's character as a judge, he can trust that God will make all things right, he can say as if these things have already happened. So look down in verses 17 and 18 with me. You'll see there is a contrast between the wicked nations and the needy who rely on God. So on the one hand, we see the wicked nations. They've forgotten God. They feel as if they are men, or not, they feel as if they're not men, they feel as if they're gods. Their wickedness will be judged. It's signed and sealed. It's a settled reality. They will return to Sheol, the grave, dust, and death. They forget God, and they will not be remembered. On the contrast, though, the needy will not be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. God will remember them. God will rescue them. Justice will be done. Even though God's people have to wait, our waiting will not be in vain. David therefore calls the Lord to rise up, asking the Lord 
not letting mere humans prevail. And I find it really interesting and really quite cool that the wicked nations that David speaks about here are the same words being used when David speaks about men in Psalm 8. Remember, the word being used for men is this fragile, powerless, mortal being who relies on God. It's the same word being used for the nations. So the same frail man that has perverted the image of God, who has taken the image of God and perverted it by dominating and oppressing the weak on the earth, will be judged by God. The same man created in God's image in Psalm 8 is the same man who has perverted his role in Psalm 9 as a wicked nation, oppressing the poor, oppressing the people of God, oppressing the image of God by killing the people of God. They must be judged in the presence of God himself. And they will be forced to acknowledge who they really are. They are but mere men. For us, it's, yeah, that sounds about right. But just think about this. This is a scary judgment. When you think you're something and you realize you're not that thing, just think about this. You're playing in a sports team, maybe for Stavanger or Sannes, and you're called to the national team. You're the best player in Stavanger. And all of a sudden, you're struck with reality that, oh, you're, you're not the best player in this team anymore. And we all have examples of this, whether it's going to a sport team, maybe a new job, maybe a new school, where you're hit with a humbling reality, where in the school that you were or the town that you were, you were the top guy. And then all of a sudden, you're hit by reality that you're not that great. Imagine the massive shock the wicked will get standing before God, thinking they're their own gods, thinking that they're God of the earth, realizing that they're but man. Realizing that they're but men. And so, as we look back at God's wondrous works of creation and redemption, the psalm also looks forward in anticipation of God's wondrous salvation, where Christ will be seated on the throne, as we read in Revelation 20, judging the living and the dead, where God's enemies will come to an eternal ruin and the wicked will return to Sheol. So when we meditate upon the wondrous works of God, that we might worship Him wholeheartedly, what should we keep before us? Perhaps God's creation from nothingness. Maybe His constant provision for our lives. Maybe His promise that He will save His people. What about His covenant with our forefathers and its fulfillment in Christ our Savior? What about the Israelites' liberation from bondage and our liberation from sin and death? Maybe the shedding of the blood of Christ, His death, burial and resurrection. Perhaps we can meditate on the Israelites going through the Red Sea or even our own baptism, which signifies us going from death into life. Maybe the wilderness experience of the Israelites where they're being nourished by living water and bread. Or perhaps us who are being nourished by the words of Christ every week. I mean, there's great mysteries when we think about this. The incarnation, the atoning, 
Christ's death, His resurrection, His ascension, His setting forth of the Holy Spirit, the founding of the church, all of church history, the manifestations of God's grace in our lives, and the substance inherent in the psalms we sing every week. God's works are indeed glorious. God's works are indeed wondrous. And this is the God who sits on the throne. This is the God who we will worship for eternity. So let's worship Him wholeheartedly, not just with our lips. He has given us new life. He has given us a refuge with everything we need. He is indeed the Most High who sits enthroned forever. Let's pray.